reality of life, the way we live life, is that we have some experiences, uh, life issues. We maybe have sinful habits that keep hounding us. They're attached to us. We, they've been a part of our life for so long, we don't know what it's like to live life without them. We don't know what it's like to, to wake up a, in a day without having whatever that issue, whatever that circumstance was, whatever that sinful habit happens to be, not dogging us all day long. It just, it just seems to follow us like our shadow out in the sunshine. We can never get away from it. And so we're, we're never really truly free from it, never truly clear from it, because it's still hanging on to us. And, and, the, and here's, the, here's the problem with that. If God doesn't intervene, what happens is we've grown into a place to where whatever has happened to create this new person or this person that we've become, we don't like that guy. We look at the, the sinful habit or the circumstance that has created us to be who we are or life circumstances, and we've got this person that we've got, and we're living as that person, and we look at the mirror, we look at ourselves, and we go, I really don't like that guy at all. And then what happens is, is that we draw a conclusion, not a correct one, but we still draw a conclusion that if I don't like this guy that I've become, then God doesn't like the guy that I've become. And if I don't like the guy I've become, and God doesn't like the guy I've become, Nobody else is going to like that guy either. So what we do is we hide that guy. We don't want anybody to know about him because what we, we've come to, to believe in our heart and our mind that if somebody really knows who I am way deep down inside with all the stuff that has, has happened to me in my life to form the person I don't like, if they get to know that guy, they'll hate him. And the last thing we can can tolerate or stand or, or take into our life is the fact that we might be rejected again. And so we hide him. We don't let him come near. We don't let him step up. We don't let him do anything. And, and I can almost guarantee that there are very few of us sitting in this room this morning that have has escaped in life without having some kind of damage brought into our lives, some, some kind of hurt, some kind of event in our lives that has shaped us into being who we are, whether for good or for bad. And the truth is, is that no matter how hard we try to hide that person we have, that we've become, we can never disregard the event. We can't get away from it. it, it and the reason that we can't quite shake that thing or that event or that whole ordeal is because God has created into us this little thing called memory. Now, we, we all have memory. And memory is a crazy thing. I mean, when I'm walking through the grocery store, Pushing a cart, not my walker, but a cart. <laughs> and a woman walks by and has a, a certain perfume on, and I smell it. 
man, I think of my aunt. It was the same perfume she wore. And all of a sudden I'm like, my memory is jogged by smell. And then I get in my car and if I have a, a 70s station on my radio and I'm driving and a 70s song comes up and I, I immediately can, can vision where I was when I heard that song when I was a junior in high school. Memory. God's given us memory. And, and it's triggered by all kinds of things. And sometimes we see something, we hear something, we smell something, we taste something, we touch something that triggers a memory that's bad. We're like, that's horrible. Why do I have to think about that again? Why why is God bringing that thing to me? The wounds from that event, the wounds from that memory, it, it seems like every time the memory comes back up, it scratches the scab off of that wound, and that wound never heals. And some of us have been carrying wounds around for years, maybe decades, because it's never healed. And we've, we've gotten used to having that pain in our life And what we kind of get at is that sometimes we even get angry with God because he's the one that's allowed this to happen. And then he allows the memory to come flooding into my mind to bring that memory back to where I have to deal with it again. And God, why would you do that? Why would you bring that hurt and allow that hurt to come back into my life because it's shaped my life and I don't like the way it's been shaped. And so here's the equation that we have running through our minds. We have the event, either from our childhood or from, our, from being an adult, plus our memory that won't release us from that event. And that all equals being stuck on the, on the hamster wheel of regret, disgrace, and being victimized. And for too many of us, we let our past preside over our future. We let our past dictate our present. And we let our past control who we are rather than who God wants us to be. So how do we ever get around this? What does God even have to say about this? Well, I'm going to tell you, I've got some good news for you this morning because Jesus deals with this stuff in our lives head on. And and so I'm going I was going to bring two different people from the New Testament to the to our time together this morning. But uh, as I got into it, I realized I only have time for one of these people. And this person actually is going to really cover everything that Jesus wants to do in our lives. And so what we think might be the worst moments or events of our lifetime, Jesus uses as the greatest life changer that we could ever experience. Jesus never wastes the pain. I want you to hear that. I don't care what pain you've gone through through your life. Jesus will not waste that pain in your life if you let him. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think back to Easter. In the few weeks we were uh, leading up to Easter, we were going through kind of walking the path with Jesus towards the cross. And in that 
uh, as we were walking through that, you remember that in the upper room as Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples and Jesus was once again declaring to his, his disciples that tonight I'm going to be taken by the, the high priest and they're going to eventually crucify me. I'm going to die. This is where I'm headed. And Peter, brash Peter, who always has to say something about everything, he's got an opinion on everything that ever happens in life. Do you know that person? Yeah, you've got that person in your life. Some of you just need to look in the mirror and find that person. But brash Peter, he says this to Jesus. He says, I'll go with you on whatever path you're going to take. Even if that means to death, I will die with you. And Jesus kind of gets a little smirk on his face because he knows what's coming along. And he says to Peter, he goes, look, Pete, he goes, I love your enthusiasm. But the truth is, is that tonight, this night, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. Pete goes, never, Lord. That'll never happen. And, and, and so, you know, here's what happens is that, you know, Jesus goes with his disciples down to the garden and they go to pray. Uh, and then the, the Roman centurions come and the, the um, temple guard, they come and they arrest Jesus. Uh, and then they take him to Caiaphas, the high priest, to his courtyard for the trial. And Peter, he follows from a, a far distance and, and comes along and gets into the courtyard of Caiaphas to listen to what's going on with Jesus. And I want you to notice that there is, here's where I want you to notice one small but important detail in the narrative. And it's found in John 18, 18. And here's what it says. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now you might be saying to yourself, a charcoal fire, that is not a big deal. What is, who cares about what kind of a fire it was? Who really cares about that? All John is doing is just telling us that there was a chill in the night. They built this fire, not a big raging bonfire that you could see for half a mile, but a charcoal fire. You know the kind that you have this time of year up at the, up at the campsite when you're going to do s'mores? Perfect little coals to, to roast that marshmallow golden brown. You don't want it burnt. You don't like the burnt ones. I know Jamie does. He, likes, he, he thinks it's a torch when it catches on fire. No, you want charcoal fire. There it is right there. That's what John records right here at this moment. But we go, it's not a big deal. It's just a piece of information. And you're right. It could be construed as just a detail that John threw in there just because he recognized that. But what, and by itself, that's all it is. But what John's doing is he's wanting us to catch on to this because of what happens in chapter 21. Now, let me just read a little bit to you out of chapter 21. Uh, On verse 4, just as as day was breaking, Jesus stood on uh, the shore. Okay, now let me kind of pick you up on this. Jesus has already died. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. 
he's been he's made himself known in a couple of different places to different people okay so this this is just early on like this could be like on sunday or monday after the resurrection and and so here it is just, just as day was breaking jesus stood on the shore yet the disciples did not know that it was jesus Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? This is the disciples. What has happened here is, is uh, Peter says to the, you know, James and John and, and Thomas and some of the other disciples, he's going like, look, this whole thing that we thought about Jesus is kind of blown up in our face. We don't even know what to do. We don't have a leader. Uh, we're, everything's a mess. So what are we going to do? And so Pete goes like, I don't know about you knuckleheads, but I'm going to go fishing. I think going fishing is a good idea. I think we should do that a little bit more often. There should have been a few more amens and hallelujah on that one. T, come on, brother. Don't leave me up here by myself. There you go. Bringing it now. So they've, they've gone back to what they know how to do best because they were fishermen. That's the default button of their life. They're going back when things didn't work out with Jesus and it didn't work out the way they thought it should work out. They hit the default button. They went back to what they know to do best and they were doing it and they were fishing. And so Jesus comes along and he says, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. Now, let me just stop right there. This is not the first time this has happened with them and Jesus. It's when he called them three years ago and they were out in the boat fishing all night and came up empty handed. They came to the shore. This is just before Jesus calls them away from their lucrative business of fishing. He says, hey, catch anything? They go, nope, throw your net on the right side of the boat. They did. Okay. So they did. And that time the net started to rip. But here it says, that they caught a, uh, a quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. Well, duh. <laughs> Hello, right? I mean, like, it happens the second time. You go like, hey, I've seen this before. I know what's happening. I know who that is. And when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from land, for about a hundred yards off. Now, this is where it all gets a little bit interesting. Look at verse Nine. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. Uh oh, there it is again. A charcoal fire. Now let's let's you might be going, well, you know what, that's kind of a coincidence or or you know, maybe you know, what's the big deal? So what's the big deal about seeing a charcoal fire? Well, it's the same big deal for Peter as it is for you when whatever it is that triggers your memory and takes you back to that moment where your life went upside down, where your life got changed forever, where it started to shape the outcome of who you were and the person that you became you didn't like. That's what the charcoal fire did. It triggered Peter's memory. Because it wasn't that long ago. 
And now you, you can imagine Peter walking up onto the shore. I don't know why he didn't stay in the boat. Peter's still impetuous. Now he's sopping wet. And he walks up, and can you imagine? He knows it's Jesus now, because John told him so. And he's standing up there, and he comes walking up, and there's Jesus, and he walks up, and he looks, and the first thing he sees is charcoal fire, and boom, his memory kicks in, and he's going like, and he looks up, and he looks right into the eyes of Jesus, and then he looks back at the charcoal fire, and the thing that's on his mind is the last time I saw a charcoal fire and Jesus together was the night that I denied that I even knew who he was. Do you think Jesus did that by accident? Do you think Jesus brought a charcoal fire and said, hey, I'm going to do a charcoal fire because that's the best fire for cooking fish and making a little bread. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus didn't need a fire to cook fish and make bread. If he can create the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea, volcanoes, you think he needs a fire to cook fish and make a little bread? Nuh-uh. He did it. For a very specific reason, because he was now going to step into Peter's life and rescue Peter from being a person who lets his life be defined by one bad moment. See, that's what happens. If we make a bad decision, we make a, a bad turn, we, we find ourselves in bad circumstances, we find ourselves... In places and doing things we know we shouldn't do. And we know that it goes against God's stuff. And then the bad thing happens. And what happens is we let that moment in life define who we are. And that's what was about ready to happen with Peter. Peter was on the verge of finding out who he was. And, 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 and just think about this. Of all the things we can remember about Peter. Peter was the one that walked on water. Peter was the one that spoke collectively for the disciples. When he made the proclamation that you Jesus are the Messiah the son of God. He's the one that made that declaration. Peter at the garden just a few days prior to this. He's the one that stood up in front of 600 men. Pulled out his little sword. And lopped off the high priest's servant's ear to protect Jesus. Where are the other disciples? They're running away the other way. Peter's like, I'm going to take care of you, Jesus. I'll take them all. Certain death. Odds not my favor. What are we waiting for? Walk. Knocks the guy's ears off. Jesus heals it. But that's not what we remember about Peter. Typically, what most people think about when they think about Peter is, yep. That's the dude that denied knowing Jesus. That's what's going to define his life. Wow. You know, and, and so it, it, it's Jesus has come to the point where he's going like, hey, that's not going to happen. Here's, here's the, the thing. It's that one thing that most often defines our life. And Peter's life 
that he denied knowing Jesus at Jesus' greatest need. That's what we kind of know Peter for. That's what he gets talked about a lot about. And, and believe me, when Peter steps up to that charcoal fire, that's exactly what he's thinking about in his mind. I denied knowing Jesus. I turned my back on Jesus. He wasn't thinking about how he walked on water. He wasn't thinking how he made that great declaration that Jesus was the Son of God. He isn't thinking about how, how he, he did so many other things, feeding 5,000 one time with Jesus, feeding 4,000 another time with Jesus. When Jesus sent him out, he cast out demons in people's lives. He's not thinking about all the... M- miraculous things that he did in his life. At that moment, when that memory kicks in, his mind's looking at that charcoal fire and the only thing on his mind is, I have failed. I'm a failure. I didn't do what I should have done. And and the crazy thing is, is, is he's playing the game that we all play. The only if game. Only if I would have said something. Only if I would have done something. Only if I would have behaved differently. And for Peter, it doesn't matter. Because the outcome would have been the same. Jesus would have still gone to the cross. Because that's what Jesus was there for. He came to glorify the God, glorify the Father by going to the cross. It was for the glory of God and for our good. That's why he went to the cross. And Peter saying something would not have changed that outcome. And a lot of times what happens in our life, we start to play the what if game. And the problem with the what if game is that we don't really know what the outcome would have been like anyway. We're trying to imagine an outcome that no, we don't have any clue that was going to work out. We just think it would have worked out differently. We think we would have made a difference. We think we would have been better. But the truth is, we don't know. So when Peter heard that it was Jesus on the shore, he jumped out of the boat, swam to the shore, and Jesus was was right there. And what he encountered was memory. Jesus isn't going to let a charcoal fire define Peter's life. I want you to know that. This charcoal fire is not going to define Peter's life. And so what Jesus does is that, that he's, he's going to help Peter realize that, that Peter has a lot more going for him than a charcoal fire. So much more. But Peter has to get past the failure of the fire in order to become what God wants him to become. And so what does Jesus do? He pulls out that 800-pound gorilla and cooks the fish on it. <laughs> right there, right in your face, baby. I'm just telling you, Pete's like, oh. Oh, so, you know, the other part of this is, is that it's not just ourselves that we get caught up in this thing, because what happens is the, the great enemy of our soul knows when we are down in the trenches, when our hearts are, are weak, when our mind is vulnerable. And so what the enemy wants to do is he comes up and he starts to say things. And this is what he probably said because he's playing this video player in, in Peter's mind. And this is what he's whispering in Peter's ear. You're the worst disciple ever. You'll never amount to anything. 
your brashness is always going to limit you to, at best, mediocrity. No one loves you. No one cares for you. No one will ever listen to another thing you have to say. You are a loser. That's what the enemy was saying to them. And the problem is, is that when we, when we have these failures coupled along with what people have already told us about ourselves, plus what the enemy is telling us about ourselves, we start to believe all that crap. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And, but it's whispered in our ear and we start to believe it. And we start to go like, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm a horrible person. I'm a disgrace. I'm a, I'm a stain on the linen cloth of society. And that's what we think. And yet, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, hey, bro, don't beat yourself up over this. Because guess what? I told you this was going to happen. So, like, you should be going like, all right, Jesus told me this was going to happen. And so, you know, it's okay. I want you to look at the exchange of dialogue between Peter and Jesus, verses 15 through 17. And when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, in this exchange between Peter and Jesus, there are two different words used for love, agape and filial. And so what I want to do right now is I want to remind you what those two different words for love mean. So agape love is not simply an impulse generated from feelings. Rather, agape is an exercise of the will, a deliberate choice. This is why God commanded us to love our enemies. He can command us to love our enemies. Not, he is not commanding us to have a good feeling about our enemies, but to act in a loving way toward them. Agape love is to is related to obedience and commitment and not necessarily feeling and emotion. Loving someone is to obey God on the other's behalf, seeking his or her long-term blessing. Love is the distinctive character of life in Christ in relation to other Christ followers and all humanity. The loving thing to do may not always be easy, but true love is not a mushy sentimentalism. There is often a cost to genuine love. For example, punishing criminals is not to keep society safe is not an uh, easy thing to do, but it is the loving thing to do. When we have to bring discipline to our children, that is a loving act that we do. It just isn't easy to do. And when we have to bring Church discipline to someone who continues to live in a sinful state of being. 
That is a difficult task, but it is also the most loving thing we can do for that person. So agape love is when we exercise our will in a deliberate choice to act lovingly. The other word for love here that's being used, we need to examine in this dialogue between Jesus and Peter, is filial, which means to have a special interest in someone or something, frequently with a focus on close association, having affection for or liking something or considering someone a friend. It would probably be helpful if filio when it was translated in the New Testament, was never translated as love because um, it has a strong liking to it or a strong friendship. And, of course, we can see how this gets translated love because in our modern culture, we say things like, I love ice cream, I love my car, and I really love the way your hair looks. Your hair looks. And, And... And so the word filio implies strong emotional connection and thus is used of the deep, of the love or deep friendship between friends. You can agape your enemies, but you cannot filio your enemies. So the difference between agape and filio becomes very clear right here in this passage. The problem is is that probably in 99% of our English translations, that connection gets lost. And so what I want you to see is how this would play out. Look at it on the screen. It says, here's how it would look. Jesus, Simon, do you love agape me more than these fish? Peter, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. Jesus, Simon, do you agape me? Peter, Yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. Jesus, Simon, do you filio me? Peter grieved. Lord, you know that I filio you. Now, why the difference in the word for, words for love in this conversation? Why did Jesus use agape and Peter use filio? Jesus was asking Peter if he loved him with the love of God, a love that will require sacrifice. And after all, Jesus has just gone through a horrendous torture for Peter's sake and for ours, something he did not want to do but did anyway because his agape sacrificial love. In contrast, Peter avoided possible torture by denying Jesus. Jesus asked Peter twice, do you agape me? That is, are you willing to do things for my sake that you do not want to do. And Peter, on the other hand, still felt the sting of having denied Jesus, was, was hopeful that their friendship was still intact. Did Jesus still hold Peter's denial against him? That's the thought he's wondering. Would he still have, would, would Jesus still treat Peter as a close associate and companion? Peter was not sure where he stood with Jesus. And so when Jesus asked him if he loved him, he was trying to get Jesus to respond with, I feel old too. I love you too deeply. Deep commitment to you. But here's the thing. The third time Jesus spoke to Peter, he came to Peter's level and asked Peter uh, if, asked if Peter were indeed a true friend, which grieved Peter. Nonetheless, it was important because Jesus knew what Peter did not know. 
that Jesus would soon ascend into heaven and that Peter and the others would be left to carry out his work on earth, which would require that they all be his good friends and do his will even when it meant hardship. That's why this dialogue between Peter and Jesus is such an important thing in bringing Peter out of being focused on a coal fire. It's the exchange of love words that are here. Jesus did it. What Jesus did in this moment is he took the sting of Peter's failure and said, your failure does not define who you are. You are not Peter, the denier. You are Petros. Do you remember that? Do you remember Petros? Petros, you have Petros and you have Petra. Petra means large rock, big stone, big everything. Petros means Paul. He was saying to Peter, you know, when, when Peter made the confession of Jesus being on, on that confession, Peter, I will build my church. And you are Petros, a small stone gathered with all the rest of the disciples, building a bigger stone called the church or the ecclesia. And so Jesus has taken him and wanting to change his memory bank from remembering the charcoal fire of being Peter the denier to being Petros, the believer, and the one who who exudes who Jesus is to the whole world. He tells everybody, here's who he is. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. He makes that declaration. And so what Jesus is saying is, that fire will not define your life, but this confirmation of who I am will. Here's how it really looks. Jesus changed the perspective of Peter's view of himself. Did Peter deny Jesus? Absolutely. But is that who Peter is? Nope. Not for a moment. Because if you, you, you know, after Jesus had this meeting at the lake with his disciples, over the next 40 days, Jesus was in and out of meeting with disciples all around, popping in, popping out, popping in, popping out. One time, he, he showed himself to 500 people in the next 40 days. About on day 39 or maybe even on day 40, it says in Acts chapter 1, it says, And while staying with them, that's Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy, the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John, the Bap- for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So maybe it's like day 38, maybe 39. Verse 8. Jesus goes on to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And at that moment, then Jesus ascended into heaven, no longer with the disciples. But he told them not to leave Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon them. So they went back to Jerusalem, back to the house. All 120 of the disciples we're meeting in a room, probably about the size of this room right here, in a house. And they were in there, and what were they doing? They were praying together. They were sharing everything in common. They were there waiting. They were doing what Jesus called them to do, to wait till the Holy Spirit came. How long did they have to wait? 
10 days. Can you imagine Jesus coming in here right now and saying to all of us, he manifests himself in the spirit right here. And he says, I want you all to wait right here until my spirit comes upon you. I want you to wait. How many of you are going to go, yo, hey, boss, baby, I'm not coming into work until the Holy Spirit comes upon me. Hello? Hello? They put their lives on hold for 10 days. It's not like they didn't have businesses. It's not like they didn't have things to do. It's not like they didn't have families. It's not like they didn't have children. It's not like they weren't busy because they were busy people, just like you're busy people. And yet they, they believed what Jesus had to say to them about staying in that place until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then what happens is when you take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, that's 10 days later after Jesus had ascended into heaven, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house and they were where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now here's the glorious news about all of that. Is that Peter stood up after all that took place. Peter stood up, preached the first sermon of the church. And 3,000 people put their faith in Christ and were baptized on that day. That's Peter the denier. Do you think that he believed the lie about the charcoal fire? Or did he believe the truth that Jesus said to him, You are Petros, and on this declaration, I will build my church. What Peter, what happened to Peter with Jesus at the fire on the beach changed the trajectory of his life. He was headed down towards the pit. He was going into depression. He was stepping into gloom. He was starting to believe he'll amount to nothing but be a stinky old fisherman. And what did God do? God pulled him out, gave him a new name, and told him, here's your, I know your name, Jesus says, and here's your holy calling. Go get him, son. Go get him because I'm with you. Now, Here's the great thing is I want you to see how that one moment at that fire shaped Peter's life. And so we have to go to the book, the Peter, first book Peter wrote or letter Peter wrote to the church. First Peter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly filial love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Do you get that? Here it is, that very conversation he had with Jesus standing on the beach. Jesus says, Peter, do you filio me? The last time he says to Peter, do you filio me? He says, I do. And so what does Peter use? The very words right there. He says, filio one another deeply. Brotherly, love one another deeply. So that moment had this... Uh, impact on Peter's life. And then you look at at chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Listen to this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, Petros, 
are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see what Peter is saying? He's going like, this is who Jesus told me I was going to be. I was a Petros, a stone in this building of building God's house, God's holy people. I was Petros. That's who I am. I'm not the denier. I'm Petros. And look what Jesus has been doing through me. And then Peter goes on to say in, in, in 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, for a people, for his own possession, that you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is who Peter says, that's who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm the holy priesthood. I'm the royal priesthood. I'm beloved and loved child of Jesus. And you know what? Those are the things that Jesus is calling us out of. The problem that we have is we're still listening to this crap over here that that defined your life 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 5 years ago, maybe 5 minutes ago. You're still listening to this over here. You're still letting the enemy whisper in your ear, you're no good, you're terrible, you're the worst Christ follower, you will never amount to anything, blah, blah, blah. And you need to just tell him to shut the hell up (laughs) and get out of my life. If you're a Baptist, that kind of probably shocked you a little bit. But the enemy has this thing. He, he wants you to believe lies. He wants you to believe that you are no good. He wants you to be defined by something God says you will never be defined by. And that is a lie. Brian and Bree have a little piece of uh, handout for you this morning. And they're just going to hand them out. Now, what this is going to do, this is going to help you to understand who you are in Christ. There is so much stuff on there. You have to stand up and walk to hand them out, Brian. Just, just a little. You wanted some instruction, right? Um, if you want to take more than one, just take more than one for somebody else you know but that might need them. Anyway, so what this is, is it's going to help you to understand that you are a child of God, who you are in Christ. Because here, let me just read a few of them for you. You are his child. He has chosen you. You are his beloved. You are not condemned, but rather called to be saints. You are called by your name with a holy calling, and you are greatly loved. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are the Lord's servant, a living stone, a holy priesthood, a spiritual house. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God because you are being transformed into His likeness, which makes you more than conquerors. That's who you are. Some of you just don't believe believe it. You have been defined by your failures, by your hurts, by your past. You need to come and you need to deal with those things in order to be set free. You've tried. How many years have you been trying to set yourself free from whatever bondage this thing that has a hold of you and is holding you back? You're wondering why you're never growing in Christ. You're wondering why your life always seems to be the same. You're wondering why you're always dealing with the same issue in your life. It's because you've let that thing define who you are. And Jesus says, I have a better definition for your life. 
You just have to believe it and step into it. You just have to know it and trust it. And so this morning is is just simply this. Jesus is calling and he is waiting. He will deliver on what he has promised. And so what's going to happen is in a few minutes, when the worship team comes up to, to, to lead us in our last few songs, I want to give you an opportunity because a lot of times what happens is the reason why we're stuck where we're at, the reason why we're still defined by something other than who we are, than who God sees us to be, we're defined by our failure, we're defined by our past, we're defined by our besetting sin, we're defined by something that God says that never will define you. The reason why we're still defined by that stuff is because we've never taken a step in the right direction. We've never stepped out to trust God. And so this morning, if God's tugging at your heart, he's been poking you and saying like, you're, you're being defined by your past. And you need to be set free from that. The way you get set free from that is by getting up out of your seat, coming up here to the front. The elders are going to come and they will either pray with you, they will pray for you. If you're saying, this is a thing in my life that has, has been controlling and holding me back for so long, and I need healing from it. If you need healing, we've got oil right here. Because James 5 says, um, confess your sin one to another so that you may be healed. It doesn't just say physically. We're talking about spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And so what God wants to do is he wants to bring healing to your life in this area. So as the worship team plays, as the worship team sings, as you sing, if God is calling you here, don't be afraid. You are no longer a slave to fear. And you are no longer a slave to sin because you are a child of God. I want to make this really clear. Make no mistake about it. I'm not calling you. Jesus is calling you. I'm not healing you. The elders aren't healing you. Jesus is healing you. He'll set you free. Let's pray. Father, you know. You know the hearts. You know the lives. You know every person in here. You know what they've gone through. You know what has defined their life. You know the thing that's holding them back. You know the thing that's holding them down. You know the thing that they need to confess, the thing that they need to say verbally, that they need someone to pray with them over so that they can find freedom in who you are. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would uh, come on your people and that you would give them freedom today. Help them to get away from that charcoal fire. You're standing at the charcoal fire saying, come, let's deal with this. The charcoal fire of their life, you're saying, come. Come. We pray in your great name, Jesus. Amen.